I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Friends, today we are joined by Dr. Elena Zanin. Elena is an assistant professor in the Hugh Downs School of Communication at Arizona State University. Among other things, Elena studies how we talk about sports and sports-related injuries and the consequences of our communication. She works with the Center for Strategic Communication at Arizona State as they partner with the NCAA and the U.S. Department of Defense on the Mind Matters Challenge. The Mind Matters Challenge is aimed at improving athlete reporting of concussion symptoms to better support diagnosis after questionable head impacts. Elena, I'm so delighted to feature your work on this episode of Defining Moments. Many articles come across my desk as a journal editor. Every once in a while, an essay is so inspired and inspiring that I find myself wanting to read more from that author. And in fact, I end up binge reading their work. So you are one of those writers for me. I'm incredibly grateful that a mutual friend and colleague, Dr. Sarah Tracy, encouraged me to read your work. Today, we're going to talk about two of your recent articles published in Health Communication, and both of them focus on cultural sports narratives and self-reporting among athletes about injuries. So thanks for your work, Elena, and, and thanks for taking time to join us today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, and thank you so much for your compliments and words of support uh, regarding my work. Mm, it's fantastic. One of the things that I find really compelling about your work is that you really bring sports-related injuries to the forefront, right? Let's step back and kind of talk about generally, why is athlete safety a salient public health concern? You know, that's a really interesting question because I think that some listeners and readers might uh, see sport or sport injury as maybe trivial or um, something that doesn't affect a large amount of uh, individuals in society. Mm -hmm. But I think if we think more broadly, right, sport is, is pervasive in our culture and in our society. And even if you aren't someone who plays a sport, you probably have several people in your lives that either watch sports or uh, engage in some sort of sport activity. And um, we do know that nationally, more than 50% of boys and girls currently play youth sports, which is a, a very large amount. Um of children that are engaging in sport. And we also know that athletes are at a higher risk uh, for injury than the general public. Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting here is that research has also demonstrated that athletes are more likely to conceal and delay their treatment of injuries in comparison to the general public. So what my work is really concerned with is not these clear, apparent, and, and seen injuries, uh, like a broken bone or a torn ACL or things like that, but I'm really interested in those less apparent, hard-to-diagnose injuries that are open to discursive reconstruction. So if you think about concussions, a lot of uh, the symptoms are internal and not easily uh, diagnosed. Um, and then also, if we think about maybe more chronic injuries that are long-term or even issues uh, with athlete mental health awareness mm -hmm. and those kinds of things that are much more um, open to discursive reconstruction. Yeah. So uh, I also think sport is a really interesting context um, that might transfer to other similar structured contexts. Mm -hmm. um, 
so uh, if you think about in sports, this is a highly structured, highly bureaucratic, lots of rules, lots of guidelines, lots of different organizations kind of telling what organizational members need to do. And this could be transferred very similarly to other types of body work organizations. So when I say body work, I mean um, organizations that utilize bodies as resources. So if you think about it in a sport, in sports context, right, an athletic performance is a bodily performance. Um, and so bodies are resources and we need healthy bodies to be able to get them to perform for the organization. And there's other organizations that work like that too, like the military, for example. So Elena, you mentioned, right, how how great a percentage of our youth participate in sports, right? Almost half of of children as they're in school participate. And of mm-hmm. those who participate, if I remember correctly, according to the CDC, over 2 million youth in the U.S. every year report a concussion. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's the thing with the concussion reporting, that only accounts for those uh, instances when a severe head impact was reported, mm-hmm, right, on mm-hmm. the record um, systems of reporting. So 2 million concussions seems like a very high amount when actually those rates are likely higher. And other um, research has indicated that of those athletes, um, like holistically, of athletes that experience concussions, usually about 40% choose to either delay reporting or conceal their concussion altogether. Mm, mm. So, um, I and if we think about the short-term and long-term consequences of concussion concealment, there there are many. Um, and research is uh, we I think it's it's pretty pervasive in our in our. Uh, kind of safety culture and the media narrative that there are long-term consequences to concussions generally, like CTE. Um, you know, we've seen this kind of in the public discourse and public narrative of um, football players, you know, um, having aggressive behavior, having mood swings, having changes, and then um, ultimately often uh, committing suicide, very mm-hmm. sadly. Mm-hmm. Um However, there are actually, there's more and more research coming out that's showing that this is actually, um, there are short-term, very immediate consequences to concussions beyond just the symptoms of feeling dizzy and things like that. Um, There's growing evidence that uh, co-occurring depression and mental illness Mm. can be a result of uh, concussions. And also, um, there's studies that have shown that if concussions are not treated immediately um, and reported immediately, that you are at a much higher risk of suffering a secondary concussion, which actually is more dangerous. And then you're also at a higher risk for other musculoskeletal injuries. So, I mean, and this makes sense, right? If you get a hard hit to the head and then you go back in and play another, um, 20 minutes of a game, you're much more, your balance is going to be off. You're much more likely to, you know, stick your foot the wrong way, twist an ankle, tear your knee, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sports is pervasive in our culture. And the, the number of reported injuries is on the rise. And that's only, right, those that are reported. And like you said, many of those injuries are invisible. So they go unreported. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. there can be a cascade effect where it it really does impact your mental well-being and other parts of your body. This is just mm-hmm. a, this is a significant public health challenge for folks. Yes, and uh, I know we'll talk more about um, the type of research I'm engaged in in regards to concussions. Um, but luckily, I do think uh, that stakeholders are starting to pay attention to this issue. So that's that's hope, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in, in reading your work, Elena, it's clear to me that your 
commitment to athlete safety is professional but also personal. You excelled as a track runner in high school after having been coached by your dad in Little League. Your dad is someone who I know from talking with you has always been an inspiration and a support to you. He was a marathon runner himself. You went on to compete in track at the collegiate level. In the prologue to your Defining Moments article, you narrate a really vivid experience. So for listeners who haven't read your essay, I'd like to read a short passage from the prologue, a passage that haunts me um, and, and that I find really poetic. You write, It is 2006, and I am a college freshman and distance runner on scholarship. My first collegiate cross-country season had gone well, and I had finished first on my team in several competitive races. After one race, I called my father, a former marathoner and coach, and excitedly told him I ran my personal best time. He said, did you throw up after? No, why? Well, then you can run faster. So when I first read that, I paused and I reread it. You lived that story, Elena. You then re-narrated it in an essay that was recently published. How, how do you hear that story now and re-experience it as, as I read it aloud? Yeah. So um, I think for when we take that, exchange out of the relational context between my father and myself. I think on the surface, it might sound maybe harsh uh, or insensitive, maybe. Um, but I I think if you take into account um, more of our relationship and understand um, our teasing and how sports were kind of a way that my dad and I bonded. Mm -hmm. So my dad is, he comes from a big, large Catholic family. He's one of 13. He had uh, six brothers growing up that all played sports. And I'm the child in the family that really loves sports the most. And so this was something that my dad and I, you know, strongly connected over, especially because it was running, which was also his sport. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the I think the underlying intent of this message was to say, really, I believe in you. I support you. I know you can achieve goals beyond your dreams. Um, but I think when you read it out of context, I think listeners and uh, readers might be able to also see the flip side of that messaging, right? That um, this type of messaging indicates a larger way of thinking about what it means to be an athlete. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it might also function to reinforce this idea that you should be pushing your body beyond its physical limits or trying to test the boundaries of your physical limits. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so that's what that, that really, in remembering that and writing about that and hearing it now, um, that's what I think about. Yeah. You know, later in the prologue, you recount with raw honesty your own failure to disclose the pain in your leg, right, during a race, a pain that grew progressively worse until it became debilitating for you. And it wasn't until years later that you were able to step back and identify forces that kind of, in your words, affected your decision to push the physical and material limits of your body, and certainly, like you mentioned, our families are influential. Even the mundane talk at a dinner table around, right, um, the, the track meet, right, that informs the way we think about the world. Um, so those are some of the social forces that shape, right, athletes' sense-making about injuries and whether or not they're forthcoming about injuries. But in your essay, you also talk about other interrelated forces. Right? Can, can we talk about some of those forces um, beyond the family but connected to the family that really shape how athletes make sense of and talk about their injuries or, or fail to? Yeah. So, 
you know, I, I have this emic view or this insider view of what it is to be a division one athlete. And it's interesting because when I was, when I was in it, you know, when I was 15, 16, all the way to, you know, 23, um, I didn't really recognize what I, it was, it was like air. It was like water, right. Mm. That this is just the culture in which I live in. Um, but in looking back and kind of critically maybe thinking about what are these messages and larger ways of thinking, what are they really communicating? So this idea of, you know, the idea of grit, right. And hard work, this, this Protestant work ethic. I grew up in, um, the Midwest in the, you know, you could say the rust belt of the country where there's these ideas of sacrificing for others, uh, for, um, you know, getting the job done, pushing through pain. Um, and these types of discourses, I think they are in our larger society, but they also are very strong and apparent and, and reinforce particularly in sport. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they're beneficial to us, right? So when you talk about discourse, that's a word that we often use when we think about communication broadly. And mm-hmm. that communication both enables us and it also can constrain us. And and you do talk about how, right, those discourses of grit, right, and about a work ethic, those are really powerful and, and really help people to set goals and to dream and to achieve. But when unchecked, mm-hmm. right, then then they they can also have detrimental effect on the well-being of individuals. Yeah, I do I definitely think there is a sweet spot right in the middle where we want we want to have people excel and push push themselves beyond what they think they're capable of and sport allows us to to do that, to dream bigger, right? And to expand the possibilities of what we are capable of. Um, but, uh, but I think you're exactly right. On the extreme ends, this can be very detrimental um, because, you know, time, bodily limits, uh, those types of things, they're arguably finite. Um, we don't, we can't, there are upper limits. We might not know what those are yet. Um, Mm -hmm. but I definitely think that I had to learn the hard way about training smarter rather than just harder all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's, that's key. Training smarter, not harder. (laughs) Phenomenal Mm -hmm. takeaway. And, and that differs across individual bodies, right? What that might look like for you is different than it might've looked like for a teammate. Right? And it's different across time at, at any given point in time. Oh, yes, definitely. As a as an older runner now, <laughs> I, I'm not so old, but it definitely takes me a little bit longer. I have to be a little more cautious with rehabilitation and uh, those types of things. And so it's it's um, it's being kind to your body. Right. Rather than seeing your body as this something to exploit. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. One thing that I really appreciate about your work is the unique communicative frame that you bring to understanding sports injuries. You could enter into that conversation, right, as a clinician, as an athletic trainer, right? You enter as somebody who is really interested in the way that we talk about bodies and how that talk shapes the way that we organize around bodies, um, your your recent articles focus in particular on self-disclosure. Um, before we delve deeper into some of the, the findings, can you talk to us just briefly about the research design that you and your team followed when kind of collecting communication about sport and then making sense of that in a way that could inform what the the NCAA and the U.S. Department of Defense do in terms of creating healthy environments? Mm -hmm. So we were charged with the whole aim of this larger study is to try to understand and then hopefully change the culture of concussion reporting. So 
how are we to do that? This is a pretty <laughs> big, uh, big goal. And so what we did is first, we really wanted to understand, okay, what are the larger um, messages or we've also been using the term discourse. So when I talk about discourse, what I mean is um, there's everyday talk, like everyday messages. But when we see these everyday messages, those are perpetuated in larger kind of ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so for our, our recent publication that has to deal with this work in health communication, we took a narrative frame. And so narrative is essentially a story. It's the study of stories, but it's actually much more than that because it actually is also a worldview or a way of looking at the world uh, or our social world. So this idea that uh, we come to understand our reality by storytelling Mm -hmm. and the way that we tell stories, which I think is maybe a theme of this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we did is we tried to document in academic literature, in sport media, and also in um, popular culture uh, genres, um, we tried to understand what are the stories that are functioning in relation to um, concussion reporting and or concealment. And so I won't belabor, you know, the technical, but those were kind of the corpuses of data. So when we looked at the academic literature, what we found is that there has been some uh, documentation of the narratives that are functioning within the la- a larger sport context. So narratives being these systems of stories that are functioning in thematic ways. Um, we also found in sport media that these stories were being retold and retold. So Mm -hmm. for example, um, Aaron Rodgers, (laughs) uh, leaving the, uh, early game in the season with his, I believe he had an injured knee Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and he, then he came back and, you know, it was, they were down by several touchdowns and he came back to win the game. And so that's just an example of someone kind of pushing through injury and playing through an injury, which uh, reinforces a certain way of thinking about whether or not you should disclose injury, whether or not you should treat injury, whether or not you should continue to play and sacrifice your body for the team. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so that was the first study, and that study is actually published in um, Communication and Sport. Mm-hmm. And then our second study, what we were really interested in was, okay, we found five different uh, narratives functioning in the larger sport context. And then we wanted to know, okay, how are athletes, trainers, and coaches, how might they be drawing upon these messages, these worldviews, these ways of thinking in making their decision about whether or not to report a concussion. So we actually interviewed um, 93 uh, participants, the majority of which were athletes um, Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. high-risk concussion sports. Mm -hmm. And then we also interviewed coaches and trainers. And we were interested in, we reduced our data just to focus on how they were talking about how they, uh, about concussion events in particular. Mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. um, how do you know a concussion event is occurring? Uh, what do you do, uh, during a concussion event? How do you diagnose a concussion? Those types of things. And then we, based on our previous findings in the other, uh, study, we went through and tried to find how are they drawing upon and using these types of narratives to rationalize how they're behaving during concussion events, for example, whether or not to report a concussion. And what we found is that these narratives really allowed athletes to say, well, I was, you know, I was hurt like a little bit, but it was the kind of pain that's normal, right? I always Mm -hmm, get mm -hmm. hit in the head. It's not a big deal. So I can continue to play through this pain and, you know, for my team, uh, for the benefit of my team. I really appreciate how you move between 
multiple layers of narrative. So you're looking at the personal storytelling and sense-making of athletes and and coaches and, and trainers. But you're looking at how that's informed by, connected to these broader cultural narratives. Um, so it's, a, it's really fascinating and, and really important. In general, my, one of my takeaways from, from reading your work is that you're really kind of looking at the difference between performance-based narratives and then a safety-based narrative. And of course, the performance-based narrative is much more dominant in our culture. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you distinguish between the two and, and how that's influential in the way that athletes make sense of their identities and then in terms of, of whether or not they share right what's happening to their body? Yeah, so gen- I'll speak generally about performance narratives Um, are narratives that essentially allow athletes to rationalize not disclosing a concussion. And generally, these performance narratives um, are centered on other values um, within our society. So Mm -hmm. a play-through pain narrative basically is that it's this idea that you should sacrifice pain um, and ignore pain until you're physically unable to perform. And so it's this idea that pain is normal, it's pervasive, it's part of what you signed up for as an athlete. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It's also inevitable. Um, And then it also, because it's so ubiquitous or pervasive within an athlete's experience, right? There's this idea that there's good pain and then maybe bad pain. Mm. And the bad pain only comes in when you're only unable to perform anymore, or you're unable to, for example, um, one athlete, uh, one football player discussed, well, if I didn't know how to run the play, then I probably would, you know, tell my trainer, but otherwise, if I could still, you know, accomplish the play, then, I know that I don't have a concussion. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so this rationalization, um, it really functions to, it, it functions to sanction players who don't do everything in their ability to try to continue to play, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. what we also found is that there's this huge disparity. There's many more performance stories, systems of stories that fall under performance narratives where athletes rationalize, I'm going to continue to perform rather than this uh, need for safety or a safety narrative. And so on the other side of this, there is a small growing number of people that are starting to say, no, 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 we need to protect our bodies. We need to um, see these bodies as really important that we only have one chance to have this body in this world and we should do everything in our power to protect it and ensure that we can perform to the best of our abilities. Um, And I think we can see this within the athlete and trainer talk, but I think we can also see it in the, in the larger narrative. If you think about uh, there's been a few books and documentaries that have come out about concussion um, reporting and concealment um, about how the NFL has handled concussion reporting and, and maybe in some uh, unethical ways mm-hmm, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. previously. And um, so there's kind of been a little bit of backlash against these performance narratives in terms of saying, no, 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 I, I, there's this need for safety you know, Elena, I was just I was struck in in listening to you about how easy it is to fall back on those broader mental models that are a part of our culture, mm-hmm. right? So the play through the pain, um, it, you even in your own story, kind of live that out. You say, "I wanted to outwork everyone. I wanted to be prepared." Right. I, I wanted to win for myself. I wanted to then earn my scholarship, which is connected to that commodification narrative, right? That your bodies become a commodity 
in sports mm-hmm. and you want to protect that. And and in some cases, athletes feel like they can't afford to sit out, right? They need to do that. Yeah. So this has to do with kind of, especially in the higher tiers of sport, uh, whether it be collegiate or professional, this idea that you have, you have exchanged your bodily resources and performances uh, for monetary gain and value. So when you are a collegiate athlete and you're on scholarship, you are supposed to be, you know, this, uh, a student athlete. However, you are very aware that you are being compensated for your performance uh, and contribution to the team. And this is this is made, you know, in no um, in very explicit ways by coaches. Uh, you usually will have a meeting every at the end of every semester that kind of talks about your performances. My scholarship actually increased over time. Um, as a division one athlete. So I was first just on, um, like housing and books, and then I started to perform better Mm -hmm, and they mm -hmm. wanted to keep me on the team. And so I earned higher levels of scholarship in that way. Mm -hmm. And so this is very, um, closely knit to this worldview that we should be able to not only should organizations be able to exploit bodily resources, but we as individuals should be able to export, exploit our own bodily resources to for economic gain, mm-hmm. um, which can be detrimental. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and to build off of that, then you have this big league narrative, right, where you're not going to make it in the club in the tub, Right. That <laughs> yes. the, the it's a barrier to professional aspirations if you're not able to to play through the pain and um, not sit out. Yeah. So in some of our athlete interviews, um, this was this was a common rationalization that you know if i if there's a scout in the stands that's watching and i got a hard hit to the head i can probably make it through to the end of the game and then just report my concussion later or a few days later um because i've worked so hard to get to this point um there's also this idea that if you sit out that somebody else is going to take your spot mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and so it's basically you don't want to be seen as weak, but you also want to be, there's this idea that it's almost, it's rooted in this idea of like the Cinderella story or the American dream narrative where you've worked so hard to get here and it's through this grit and perseverance and overcoming adversity that you're finally you'll finally be able to kind of quote unquote, make it mm-hmm. to the next level or to the big leagues. And so this, this type of narrative um, really reinforces that again, playing through a concussion is the rational choice here because of all the other hard work that you've put in. You don't want to miss this opportunity to quote unquote, make the club, which is a euphemism. Uh, it's it's often perpetuated in football locker rooms, but it's a euphemism for the NFL. Hi, folks. It's Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking with Dr. Elena Zanin from Arizona State University. Elena is working with the Center for Strategic Communication at Arizona State University as it partners with the NCAA and the U.S. Department of Defense on the Mind Matters Challenge. The Mind Matters Challenge is aimed at improving athlete reporting of concussion symptoms to better diagnose head impacts. You can learn more about the center's work with the NCAA and the U.S. Department of Defense at their website at csc.asu.edu slash projects. Again, that website address is csc.asu slash edu slash projects. We will include this website address and links to Dr. Zanin's articles in health communication 
on the Defining Moments Facebook at DM Podcast, W-O-U-B. If you haven't followed us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook yet, we hope you'll do so at DM Podcast, W-O-U-B. Again, that's DM Podcast, W-O-U-B. Okay, back to our conversation. So you and your team talk about this masculine warrior narrative, and and you kind of frame it as this isn't just about male athletes, but it, it certainly draws on a dominant understanding of what it means to be masculine. Can you talk yeah, to us about so, that? Yeah. So, so I think this relates very strongly to ideas of toxic masculinity as well. Um, and, you know, from reviewers and also uh, in presenting this at conferences, I think that um, people who haven't been in sport don't under- necessarily understand, obviously, sex and gender are two different things. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, masculine and masculine masculinity and masculine performances these cut across sex, obviously. Um, and sport has this, uh, kind of rhetoric of what it means to be tough was it, what it means to perform masculinity. And it's also this kind of like idealization of a masculine warrior. So this idea Mm -hmm. that violence, bravery, and sacrifice demonstrate your athletic identity. This is part of kind of who you are or who you should be if you are a good athlete, a valued athlete, a contributing athlete. Um, And I saw this, you know, I don't know if this might be surprising to listeners, but this, this is even in you know, collegiate cross, cross country, a girls team. There's definitely a competition among us and there's definitely this idea of, of sacrifice, bravery, um, uh, yeah, grittiness mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in competition. I just am, like, I feel this in my gut right now. I have mm-hmm. a daughter who's graduating high school, Elena, and for nine years she competitively played basketball. And mm-hmm. I have just have vivid memories of her dislocating two fingers and she would come off the court and the trainer would tape them and she would go right back in. And it was in part because of, right, this, this understanding of what it means to be tough, right? And that you don't want to let other people down, right? Mm -hmm. So it is that warrior mentality. It's also, I'm going to play through this because I have people depending on me. Um, and you're just mm-hmm. not sure as a parent, it, it's so hard to to be in the stands. And are you complicit in this? Because you see right. it happening, yes. right? And then she's yes. heralded for being tough and, and it's rewarded, yes. right, for making those choices. Exactly. And, you know, what's interesting, so we have done some pilot testing of our intervention video with some club athletes, Um And I was interviewing uh, a team or we conducted a focus group of roller derby girls. And um, I was asking them, do you think it's harder for uh, female athletes or male athletes to report a concussion? What do you think? And they said, well, actually, we think it's harder because for uh, female athletes, it's harder for us because we we have to... um, establish and defend that we are tough more so than a male athlete who maybe looks a certain way or is maybe given a little more credibility as being a tough athlete. Mm. And they often use the word, we don't want to be seen as dramatic, Mm. Mm -hmm. which I think is a very interesting word choice, right? This idea that Oh, uh, saying that, oh, I'm injured <laughs> is a is a performance, is a dramatic performance rather than something that should be taken seriously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's interesting to me, and, and I just want to talk out loud about this. Um, in thinking about what you describe as these performance-based narratives, right, compared mm-hmm. to a safety narrative, the issue of time seems to be to be central, right? So the temporal dimension 
is very different in the performance versus the safety-based narratives. In one of your articles, you write, of note are the performance narratives short time horizons of resolution when compared with the safety narratives much longer temporal arrangement. In the latter, any positive consequence of safety-related actions are generally not realized immediately, right? So it seems Mm -hmm. like this is really at the crux of the public health dilemma, these broader narratives that are so dominant that are based on performance, that are based on grit and playing through the pain and, Mm -hmm. right, knowing that in some cases your body is a commodity you don't want to lose your scholarship if you if you search for the big leagues right there's an expectation that you you need to warrior through this those are all mm-hmm. focused temporally on the short term right what you need to do um mm-hmm. and the safety based narrative is really asking right to step back and and think about this in in a broader horizon of the of the lifespan so yeah, so a couple things. So we are trying to uh, integrate this I, this temporality of immediate consequences, but immediate also immediate benefits. Framing it as a benefit, yeah, um, for these concussion related interventions. So um, I do think that there, I, and we can talk a little bit more about how the several ways or recommendations that I think that we might downplay the immediate negative consequences of feeling like you're, you're not, uh, you're feeling your team or you're not contributing or things like that. I think there are some tangible steps that we can take tomorrow to really help athletes kind of manage these identity issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't necessarily think, I mean, a lot of health intervention campaigns have seen that making long-term uh, persuasive arguments to kids and young adults in terms of health behavior change, like for example, smoking cessation. Uh, we know that this is not necessarily very effective, <laughs> right. Uh, right? Like we don't tell, we don't tell uh, kids that are smoking from an early age, well, you're gonna get cancer in 20 years. We tell them, it's not cool. Your friends are going to think you, you know, you smell bad or girls aren't going to want to kiss you or something like that, where it's immediate social consequences that are more likely to change behavior um, in the short term rather than, uh, oh, well, if that's 20 years down the road, I don't really care about that. It's not uh, relevant to me and my life experience right now. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I think what you and your team are doing is is really brilliant in terms of trying to integrate kind of the safety narrative episode into performance-based narratives. And in doing that, you're shifting it, right? You're you're disrupting that just a little. So an example that you share is, that I found really riveting is Aaron Rodgers leaving the game and his teammate, right, encouraging him not to come back in, right? And he chose not to, Mm -hmm. right, for that game. But then they came back and they won the Super Bowl, right? So Mm -hmm. you integrate this safety narrative episode, but it doesn't necessarily conflict with that broader value of the performance base. We want to win and we want to contribute to the team, right? It's not an either or. You integrate it within. Right, exactly. So... I think that sometimes, you know, I think when we went into this project, it's not reasonable for us to think that we're going to holistically change a culture that's deeply ingrained overnight, right? So what our idea is that we're going to meet them where they are and use the narrative logics that make sense to them to try to shift, just shift a little bit in terms of how they're making sense of a situation, right? So you gave the example of Aaron Rodgers and a teammate coming up. So when a teammate comes up to you and says, Hey, it's okay. This is what, this is the choice. Taking yourself out of the game right now is what's best for our team and what our team needs right now, because we're going to need you later. So if you're not thinking straight or you're not um, able to throw the ball as far as you normally are or whatever, 
and you're opening yourself up to further injury because you're not playing at 100%, then we really need to get you fixed up now so we can have you later in the season because you're so valuable to our team. Um, And so that's kind of the type of narrative logic that we're trying to invoke Mm -hmm. where we're still drawing upon the performance narratives and helping athletes to protect a positive identity, right? So we're still telling the athlete, hey, we care about you. You're not it's not that you're not a part of the team. It's that we really value you so much that we want to make sure that you're able to play later. Um, In doing so, I think you're helping us to um, step by step, story by story, rethink about what it means to be tough and, and what it means to care. And sometimes, right, being tough means not playing. Right. So you get to that place by kind of meeting them where they're at, but reintegrating some of some of the safety based narratives in that. And along the way, you you can change some of those values. Yes, yes. And the other thing that we're trying to do is some of the athletes um, expressed that uh, a multiplicity of identity, like, for example, when we saw them invoke this need for safety narrative. One of the soccer players was explaining, you know, that's my head. I need my head for a really long time and I need it for school and I need, you know, Mm -hmm. and so it doesn't matter about how high stakes this game is. Like I'm going to, if it's not a smart choice for my health and I'm not going to play through a concussion, Um, which I think you hear in this excerpt that it's this idea that, I am a student and I need my brain to be a student and I'm also mm-hmm. an athlete. And so I I also think like expanding these opportunities for positive identity enactment mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and trying to see how athletes might you know have a multiplicity of identities in this context I think would be really helpful. Mm-hmm. When my daughter and I were watching this year's NCAA Women's Basketball Championship game, I had been I- immersed in several of your articles, and and so I was watching it right from from a place of having you right in in conversation with me. But mm-hmm. what struck me as so interesting beyond uh, the the really competitive, great nature of, of the game between the Baylor Bears and, and Notre Dame, one of the, the Baylor players, Lauren Cox, who ended up getting injured at the end of the third quarter, so she couldn't complete the game, um, couldn't be there on the court when her team won, but was certainly there in spirit. They mm-hmm. did several stories about her, and one of the, the things that a lot of people don't know is that she also lives with diabetes. And what I found really powerful, Elena, is that her teammates and her coaches all know about her diabetes. They all know that she has an insulin pump, and they watch out for her, and, and they mm-hmm. they watch her body. They can, they can make sense of her... Um, her sign, her body language, and and they can ask her, "Hey, do you need to take a break? Right? Do you need to to get some orange juice?" Because they they are yes. so attuned to her body, and it strikes me as a really healthy way at a very competitive level. These are are a group of young women who went on to win the national championship, who are there to say, "Wait a second, we want to we want to pause because you are really important to this team." And your health, your well-being, your body is really important to this team, and mm-hmm. and we want you to step aside for a second. We want to we want us to pause with you for that. And it struck me as a another powerful example of what this can look like in a very competitive environment. And so you strike a. This is such a great example of a positively functioning team, right? So they are making it okay. They're not stigmatizing her for having, uh, you know, diabetes. They're making it okay for her to be a contributing member of the team. But they're also letting her have a positive identity enactment, right? So they're not waiting for her to say, oh, no, I don't feel good or I'm going to faint or I think my blood sugar is low. They're picking 
up on her social cues and they're giving her that discursive space to still enact a positive identity, right? So when you say, hey, I noticed this, right? Like it's making it more discussable and acceptable to say, yeah, I think I do need to sit out and have some orange juice. Or in the example of a concussion, uh, having a teammate say, hey man, like I noticed like you had a really hard hit out there. Are you okay? Um, makes it a more discussable. It's one more extracted cue, right? In that in that concussion event. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's very different than some of the the other stories that you share in your work that you've heard from athletes. Like you're not going to make the club if you're in the tub, right? Like mm-hmm. suck it up. You could. You don't need. Yeah. You don't need to to really nurse your body at this point. Um, so I. I think that what you're trying to do um, from a narrative-based perspective is is so incredibly powerful, Elena. You and, and your entire team of members. So as, as we wrap up our conversation, um, what advice would you offer um, to athletes, trainers, coaches, even parents, right, who, who care deeply about how do we maximize the benefit of of sports and and minimize the potential danger? What advice would you offer? Well, I think think there's a lot of things that we can do right now to kind of reduce this idea of concealment. Um, And first, I'll just kind of speak to like a systemic level, and then I'll I'll talk about like individually. Mm -hmm. So current systems or concussion protocols, injury protocols, a lot of times they put the onus on the individual athlete to report as well as the athletic trainer, but they don't invite other team members to necessarily participate in the health and well-being of their teammates and players. And I think part of this is uh, just because it's the path of least resistance, it seems like the most logical thing to do. But I also think that there are some legal liability structures that are functioning here, right? Coaches uh, don't feel like they have the requisite expertise to be a part of that conversation. Um, And they're also afraid that people are going to say, well, you were pressuring me to go back in when maybe I shouldn't have or things like that. That being said, when coaches aren't a part of the conversation, they still do influence those interactions, right? They're still making decisions about who's going to, about playing time, about coordinating athlete return to play protocols with athletic trainers and those types of things. So my first recommendation would be to see injury and athlete uh, disclosure as a team-based problem and responsibility. Mm. So just like in your previous example, um, when you have a teammate come up to you and say, and looking for, hey, I see my my teammates not really feeling so hot, or I know there's something wrong with him or her, um, this gives uh, the decision makers in the situation, probably an athletic trainer and coaches, um, more information that they might not be privy to if they just ask the, asked an athlete who doesn't want to disclose their injury because maybe they feel embarrassed or worried or um, scared that they might lose their spot on the team. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, secondly, for athletes, uh, I would just, and this is something that I talked about in the Defining Moments article, but I would just say if something feels wrong in your body, listen. Um, I know that you might not want to be overly cautious and, uh, I know there probably are instances when you feel discomfort, you know, as a long distance runner, I've, I've ran on a lot of blisters (laughs) and and had a lot of chafing and things like that. But, um, I think the more that you listen to the, your body, the more that you are kind of, um, aware of what types of things are emergency situations where you might need to ask for help. And also the other thing is when you ask for help, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go through the full concussion 
rehabilitation protocol. Um, it's better to be safe than sorry in those types of instances. Um, parents, I would say, take concussions seriously, mm. take concussion symptoms seriously, and also um, be aware of the co-occurring mental illness issues that go along with this. Uh, recently, there has been so many heartbreaking stories about collegiate athletes um, that have committed suicide after receiving an undiagnosed concussion. And so if there are, if you are seeing severe mood changes uh, in your friends or in your children, this is something to be taken very, very seriously. Um, and seeking treatment is essential uh, to recovery and rehabilitation. You know, I, I would love um, to come full circle to where mm -hmm. we started. Um, so we started in kind of talking about how you're working with the Arizona State University Center for Strategic Communication, and you're developing a series of narrative-based intervention, right? And these interventions are a part of the NCAA Mind Matters Challenge that's aimed at improving athlete reporting of concussion symptoms. So based on the work that you've been doing with your colleagues, and, and we'll give them a shout out for the other members of your team, um, yes. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of those interventions that you're developing that you hope will kind of shape um, the future of, of the way that we report about this? And I mean, this is significant. Your, the, your centers received over a million dollars in funding from the NCAA and U.S. Department of Defense for, for the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it's very exciting. We're wrapping up uh, this project actually this month, um, uh, three years of research. So um, the intervention that we've developed is a video intervention that we hope to, that will be um, provided to Division One athletic teams. And what we've, the way that we've designed this video is we've actually taken um, narratives about concussion events um, within our stories, or, sorry, within our interviews. And what we've done is we've included these narratives, but we've uh, also included and highlighted um, resolutions of performance. So this idea that my teammate recognized that I was acting funny and he helped to make it okay for me to go talk to my coach. That's like in one of our narrative stories within this video. We also um, talk a little bit about how there's immediate consequences for not reporting a, con a concussion or delay reporting of a concussion. So for example, we talk about musculoskeletal injuries and how your rates for that increase. And so we're trying to bring in the narratives that we found that are already present in this context, but then tweak them a little bit so that we show how you can resolve uh, to report based on these narrative logics. And interestingly enough, so we, we, ha we are still doing some analysis of uh, how effective this intervention is, but we have found significant differences between groups on a narrative transportation scale. So what this means is that uh, they are being kind of taken up with the story and transported. Mm -hmm. uh, and they identify with that story. And we have also seen this in other health behavior intervention research that this usually results in intended behavioral change. So that's really exciting. We, we've also found some uh, interesting changes in attitudes towards concussion reporting. And also our team, this is not my area of expertise, but uh, vestedness uh, and assessments of risk in relation to concussions. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's really exciting that uh, the narratives are actually uh, pretty meaningful to athletes. Elena, the work that, that you and your team uh, are doing is incredibly important. It's timely and um, it's salient. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And, and thanks for joining us and talking to us about that. For those listeners, thanks for joining Elena and I for this episode of Defining Moments. 
Sports remain an important part of our culture and they can foster well-being and sometimes endanger it. Elena's work is trying to maximize the former and really minimize the latter. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast WOUB. On our Facebook page, we provide links to some of Elena's written work and to Arizona State's Center for Strategic Communication and the NCAA and U.S. Department of Defense Mind Matters Challenge. Thanks for joining us today.